Well, you've heard the statement, saving the best for last, right? Jesus didn't believe in that statement because this is not the best church. In fact, Jesus saved the worst church for last. This church was located in Laodicea. You've seen this map every time that we've stood up here, but Laodicea, there's the, the zoomed out version. Here's the zoomed in version. You've got Laodicea on the bottom right side here. Okay, so this is the, the Lycus Valley is what it's referred to, and that's where this church was located. What do we know about this city? Well, we know a few things. Number one, we know that this city was most likely founded by the Greek ruler Antiochus II sometime between 261 and 253 BC. Now, he ruled for longer than that, but in 253 BC, he divorced a wife of his whose name was Laodice. And we believe that Laodicea was named by Antiochus II after this wife, Laodice. And we're just pretty confident that he didn't name it after an ex-wife, but probably named it at some point during that initial part of his reign, 261 to 253 BC. It was also located on a major trade route in the Lycus Valley there, near Colossae. So you remember the, the letter to Colossians that Paul wrote. Well, the, the church here in Laodicea, Laodicea was, was a neighbor to Colossae. And so it was right in that area. And in fact, it was on this trade route, which was an, an intersection of the major east-west thoroughfare and the major north-south thoroughfare that went through Asia Minor. And so this was a, a key location and led to a lot of the prosperity uh, that this city enjoyed and, and uh, was, was known for. The city, similarly to, to Sardis, was an easily defendable city. It had mountains surrounding it, and so really it wasn't too hard to, to keep it safe while they, uh, they continued to, to prosper there. The, the real only major weakness of Laodicea was that they didn't have a natural water source that was drinkable in the city. And so what they had to do is they had to bring in the water from outside sources. You'll see a picture here in a minute of some of the aqueducts that they built and they buried underground, and that's how they got their drinking water into the city. That's going to play a role in Christ's letter to this church as well. The economy, as I mentioned, was strong not just because of the trade route, but also because they were known for this production of a, a luxury black woolen clothing. And so it was highly desired from the, the other cities in the region of Asia Minor, and if they wanted it, they had to come here to Laodicea to get it. Finally, it's the location of a famous school of medicine that was known for its eye medication. Again, Christ seizes on some of these things that were true about the city historically, true about the city geographically, as he writes this letter to them and personalizes it to them. So this is the, the city of Laodicea. It's not the, the, the greatest city in Asia Minor, certainly not the, the worst city in Asia Minor. would have been a, a comfortable city to be in, probably pretty similar to what we experienced here in Orange County. It was a, an affluent area. Here's some of the, the images that we see. This temple ruins from Laodicea right here. There's no mention in this letter of persecution, but this was not a Christian town. The reason I think there's no mention of persecution here in this letter is much like Sardis, this church was not any threat to the, the secular world around it. This church was not a threat to Satan or his kingdom, and so he wasn't worried about bringing persecution against this church. But there were other gods and goddesses worshipped there in Laodicea. Here's the picture of the underground aqueducts, some of the ruins actually from Laodicea here that they had built. It may be a little bit hard to see this morning with the lights, but it's, it's limestone there, and what they did is they hollowed out the center of it. They bored through the center of these pieces, and then they, they connected them together to create these pipes to be able to bring the water in. Here's a, a picture of a, a filter that they actually created for the, the aqueducts there. And so again, you've got limestone rock that they hand-carved and 
they made these, these sieves through which the water would pass and it would clear out a lot of the debris before it got to their main reservoir where they would uh, store their, their drinking water. But yeah, that's the city of Laodicea. What do we know about the church in Laodicea? Well, the church in Laodicea was not founded by the Apostle Paul, but we believe by Epaphras. At least it was the product of Epaphras' ministry. Epaphras was sent by Paul to evangelize this particular region, the Lycus Valley region in Colossians chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. So it's likely that's how this church got its start, how the gospel was first brought into this area. And you might say, well, how do we know it wasn't Paul? Because Paul tells us that. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, that he had never visited this area. He had never been to Laodicea. It was an area that he desired to go to, but he hadn't yet been there. So we can say with confidence that Paul was not the one who founded the church here in Laodicea. Outside of that, like the other churches that we've studied outside of, of Ephesus, we don't know a whole lot. There wasn't a letter written to this church. It's not really mentioned in the book of Acts anywhere specifically. And like I mentioned previously, there's also no mention of persecution for this church. So Laodicea, the church in Laodicea, let's get into the text together. Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The words of the amen. The amen, that's, that's a, a unique word. It's one that we tack on to the end of our prayers. But what does amen mean? It means let it be, right? It means truly. It means verily is, is what that is. In fact, when Jesus says in the Greek text, if you've ever read in the Gospels, and Jesus starts out a sentence and says, truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, amen, amen, I say to you. That's the word in the Greek there that's used. So this is the word that, that had to do with truth. And so Jesus is introducing himself as the amen. It's an allusion to Isaiah 65, verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. So twice there, God is referred to as the God of truth. Jesus is introducing himself, establishing his identity as the true God here in this message to Laodicea. But also, 2 Corinthians 1.20, maybe your mind went here. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so there you have it again. Jesus referred to as the amen, as the yes of all of God's promises, the fulfillment, the true reality of all of God's promises. And so he's establishing that his, his validity, his authority with this church, his veracity with this church. But then he goes on and he calls himself the faithful and true witness, the faithful and true witness. Here he's putting himself in stark contrast with this church. He's showing them that he is far and above beyond anything that they are because this church was anything but faithful. In fact, they had been unfaithful to Christ, which is what led them to their predicament and the problem that they were facing. Jesus is the faithful one, the reliable one, the one of integrity par excellence. He is the one above all. He is faithful, faithful but more than that, he's the true witness. As you think about the role of the church, as you think about the role of believers, as you think about the Great Commission, as you think about Acts 1-8, as you think about the book of Acts as a whole, as we've been reading in DBR, the believers were called to go out and, and what? Give witness, bear testimony to Christ, right? This church was not doing that. 
They had failed in that regard. And so Jesus was again writing to them saying, look, I am the true God. I am the faithful and true witness, the one that you have utterly failed. I am the definition of what it looks like to succeed is what Jesus is saying. And then he says, the beginning of God's creation. And that's an interesting phrase there. But if you'll remember Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following there, one of the things that Paul says there in that great hymn of Christology is he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. We know there he's not talking about linear order because we know that Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus was never created. What he's doing there with the word firstborn is he's appealing to the rank of Christ over all creation. That in the ancient world, the firstborn held the position of highest honor, was due the most glory, held the the position of receiving the the greatest inheritance. And Paul in Colossians 1 was saying, that's Jesus. He is the the one that is above all in creation. And it's a similar concept here as Jesus is introducing himself and he says the beginning of God's creation. That word beginning there is actually the Greek word arche, which can mean beginning, ruler, or originator. And so maybe beginning is not the best word to choose there because it can lead to some confusion there and suggest, well, was Jesus saying that he was created? No, he's not saying that. He's saying he's the the first over all creation. He is the ruler over all of creation. He is the originator over all of creation. And so as he's writing this letter, as he's addressing this church in Laodicea, he starts out by really establishing his authority, his divine perfection, his truthfulness, his divine standard of being the faithful and true witness. Now we're used to, with most of these letters, after this address, him going into a commendation, right? Hey, you know what? Here's what you're doing well. Well, when we come to the church and lay to see it, there's not anything that this church is doing well. There's no commendation anywhere in this letter, and it's one of the lengthier letters as you look at it verse-wise. But even the church in Sardis, the church that was known as the church that had a reputation of being alive but was dead, Even in that church, Jesus had something positive to say when he said, hey, you know what, you've got a few there who are still walking with me. And so they're doing well, and they're going to walk with me in white. But at this church, there's nothing, nothing worth commending. And so what he does is he goes straight to the confrontation. He says this, he says, I know your works. There it is again, works is that word in the Greek that has to do with their moral uh, standards, their moral behavior. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. To understand what Jesus was saying there, it helps us to get a background for this area of of Asia Minor. There were hot springs located in Herapolis, which was nearby to, uh, to Laodicea here. And then there were cold springs that were located in Colossae. Well, these hot springs in Herapolis were up uh, above Laodicea, and they would cascade down over the the mountains and over the cliffs there. And when they started, they were nice and warm, and and people would go there for for medicinal purposes to receive healing and to to relax and to recuperate. But by the time that water got over the the hills and, and mountains and all the way down to Laodicea, it was no longer hot, but it was also not cold and refreshing. It had simply become lukewarm and and tepid. And so as Jesus is writing, he's writing to this city and and using an example that they would have had very intimate knowledge of. Everybody there knew that the water that naturally flowed through Laodicea, nobody wanted anything to do with that. That's why they built those underground aqueducts. Because if you were to to take a a cup, a mug, a glass, whatever, and and put it down into that stream and pull it up and try to drink it, it it would have been revolting to you because the temperature wouldn't, wouldn't be anything that you would want anything to do with. 
So as Jesus will say later on, it would have caused you to, to take that water that you just drank and spit it out. I don't know if you've ever heard this passage preached from the standpoint of addressing spiritual fervor. That, hey, you're, you're not hot. You're not on fire for Christ. But you know what? You're not even, you're not like an opposed atheist either. You're just in the middle. You're just lukewarm. You're straddling the fence. Have you ever heard it preached of, of this is a message about straddling the fence? It's not what this is about. It's not what this is about at all. And again, we, we have to go to the geographical region to understand what Jesus is addressing here. He's saying, look, there's hot springs up in Herapolis, and those hot springs were good for healing, and they were, were good for medicinal purposes. And, and there's cold springs over in Colossae, which were cool and refreshing and would, would quench the greatest thirst. And so both of those served a great benefit and provided a great blessing to people. But, but you in Laodicea, you have nothing, nothing good about you. So he's saying, I, I wish that you were either beneficial by being a source of, of healing to people or beneficial by being a source of that cool, refreshing, thirst-quenching uh, nourishment to people. Because it doesn't make any sense for Jesus to look at a church and say, you know what, I, I wish that you were either on fire for me or adamantly opposed to me. Right? That, that, that makes no sense at all. What benefit is it for them if, if he's addressing unbelievers in this church as it is, and I believe that he is, what benefit is it for them to, to just go adamantly opposed to Christ rather than just straddle the fence? They're both going to hell. So it's, it's pointless that Jesus would say, hey, get off the fence and make a decision. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, look, I want you to be useful. I want you to provide a, a benefit to those that are around you. Be a benefit to one another. Be a benefit to the communities around you. Be the, that healing source of, of recuperation that was known for the hot springs or be that that cool refreshing presence that was known for the the cold springs in Colossae but as it is you bring nothing of worth to the table and so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is what benefit are we providing to the body of Christ as we examine our own lives are, are we a useful saint in God's household are you an encourager are you refreshing to those around you it's point number one for us this morning it's this, be useful to the body of Christ. Be useful to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 and following, Paul here speaks to the, the body of Christ and he uses that metaphor. And here's how he addresses it. He says this, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were, were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. There are many parts, yet one body. Are, are you playing your part in the body of Christ here at Compass Bible Church? If we take scripture at face value, which we should, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says very clearly that God has arranged, notice the language there, it's intentional, it's purposeful. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them. The individual attention that God has, has given and, and paid close uh, attention to. 
the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. He's reiterating this idea that God is sovereign over how he compiles the body of Christ. And he compiles the body of Christ such that every person who is a part of the body of Christ here at Compass Bible Church has a part to play in the health and the body life of the church. All of us need to be useful to the body of Christ. So I ask you, are are you playing your part in the body of Christ? In your words, are you a refreshing source of encouragement to other believers? In your works, are you a source of strength for those who are struggling or hurting? Are you contributing? Are you giving back or are you simply consuming? And maybe you're out there thinking, well, I don't really have anything to offer, but I want to challenge you that, that God does not save anyone with nothing to offer. He doesn't. And you can say, well, Pastor PJ, how can you be so sure of that? What type of gifts are we talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Are these gifts of the flesh? Gifts of the Spirit, right? So when God saves you and gives you His Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit enters into you and gives you gifts, equips you to be able to be used for the building up of the saints, for the equipping of the saints, for the health of the body. And so if you are a believer, you have some sort of spiritual gift, whatever that may be. And it's going to look different for all of us. And that's his whole point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But you do have a gift that you need to be using for the benefit, for the, the, the good of the church here at Compass Bible Church. And so are you doing that? If you're a genuine believer, you should be contributing. Actively caring for the men in your small group. Building them up, praying for them, exhorting them. You should be serving in ministry somewhere. Whether that's with our ushers, our parking ministry, our kids ministry, wherever it is, serve somewhere in ministry. If you're not doing these things, you're either quenching the Holy Spirit or you're self-deceived into thinking that you're a believer when you're just like the believers here in, the, 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 the fraudulent believers here in, in Laodicea who are thinking that they're Christians when really they're not at all. When I was in ninth grade, I, I was on the football team and I know that's not shocking at all to any of you. Especially you, Evan. See you walking in late. And, and I, I actually played center on the football team, believe it or not. Yeah, I know. It makes sense, right? But by God's grace to my team, as much as me, I, I went down with stress fractures in preseason. So I didn't play all year long. But I was there, and I stood on the sidelines, and I, I wore the jersey, right? So from the outside looking in, I, I mean, I guess you could say technically, I, yeah, I was, I was part of the team. But I didn't do anything. And I, I, I was there, though, and I was faithful to be there, and I was on the sidelines, and I was at practices and everything else. And yet I remember the, the last game of the season, the team won, and, and I went out to celebrate with the team. And, and as I was running out there to celebrate, one of the other coaches grabbed me by the arm, and he looked at me and he goes, what are you so excited about? You didn't do anything. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and retire right now. But that's what his message was to me. He said, why are you excited? You didn't do anything. Guys, woe to us if Christ says that to us when he returns. Woe to us if he says that to us when he returns. That was what he was saying to this church in Laodicea. He's saying, stop playing the game. Stop pretending. You have no business trying to put yourself off as my bride. I don't know you. You're worthless. You're useless. You're not hot or cold. You're disgusting. You're revolting, is what he's saying to this church. He wasn't wishing that they would wake up and, or to, that he would 
that they would be, be hostile towards him, that they would make a decision to go, okay, yeah, I'm going to be really on fire for Christ, or you know what, no, I'm, I'm just going to make a decision not to follow him. That's not what he's saying. That's nonsense. He's saying, no, wake up and be useful. Play your part. Jesus doesn't want a church full of stagnant, inward-focused believers who are not useful to him, his mission, or his family. And so his response to their spiritual lukewarmness was the same as those who would drink the water there in Laodicea. He says this, so because, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will vomit you. I will spew you out of my mouth. Strong language from Jesus. Very strong language from Jesus. Because this was a serious issue. Eternity was at stake for the people that were playing church in Laodicea. And so he gives this threat, this warning to them. And some have said, well, he's going to spew them out. And this is an allusion to the impurities that were in the water in Laodicea. No, it's not. That's, that's bunk. This is because Jesus is disgusted by this church. Not because there's anything in the water that's going to make him feel sick to his stomach and cause him to throw up. No, this is like, I, I, if, if you're like me and you like coffee, you like coffee that's either really hot or if it's iced coffee, really cold. But if your coffee sits out for too long and you go to, to, to drink it unaware and you take that first sip and that coffee is lukewarm, if you're anything like me, I'm, I'm grabbing my trash can and, and that sip is going back in that trash can. Why? Would it hurt me to drink that coffee? No, it wouldn't hurt me. It wouldn't do my body any harm. But that coffee is disgusting. It's revolting. I, I don't want anything to do with it. And so I spit it out, not out of fear that it's going to harm me, but because it's absolutely appalling to me. Guys, that's how Jesus feels about this lukewarm Christianity. It's appalling to him. He, he says in, in the ESV there, I will spit you out of my mouth. It almost communicates that that's a, a foregone conclusion, but that's not what the Greek is communicating there. It's, it's actually, he uses a word that says, I'm about to, I'm getting ready to, I'm preparing to spit you out of my mouth. And so even still here, even with this church that is so revolting to him, that is so appalling to him, he's still in his compassionate love, as we'll see later, he's still providing them an opportunity to change direction. He's calling on them to repent, to, to leave their old ways and, and to pursue this new course that he's calling them to. But it is serious. And why is it so serious? Well, it's so serious because these were fraudulent Christians. These weren't real believers. These were people who were thinking, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll throw Christianity into my life because it's pretty easy to be a Christian around here. There's no persecution. The rest of my life is pretty easy. The church isn't going to ask too much of me. So I'll, yeah, sure, why not? I'll, I'll, I'll add this Christianity thing to me. Maybe, who knows? Maybe this God will bless me just like the other gods bless the, the other people. See, these were believers like, not believers, these were, were people like those mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 6. Verses 4 through 6, the writer of Hebrews says this, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared it in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
By the way, as a sidebar, this is not talking about losing your salvation because right after this passage, the writer of Hebrews says, but we are convinced of better things regarding you, brothers. And so he sets off brothers, Christians, from who he's talking about in this passage. Who's he talking about in this passage? He's talking about people that are hanging around the church but are never submitting to their Savior. They're partaking of the heavenly gift or tasting of the heavenly gift in the Holy Spirit in, in the sense that they're being around the, the church. They're benefiting from being a part of the church. An unbeliever can come into the church and benefit from the love of the saints, right? Can be encouraged by the, the love of the saints and yet not have a genuine relationship with Christ. And what this passage is threatening is this passage is threatening that there is a point in which you can become so hardened to the Lord while being so close to his bride that eventually it becomes impossible for you to be saved. It's the same thing that Jesus, or not Jesus, well, except through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. When he says, you know what, they've exchanged the glory of God for, for the glory of man. They're worshiping the, the creature rather than the creator. And what does Paul say there three times in that passage? So God gave them up. So God gave them up. So God gave them up. It's the same idea. This church is full of people who are playing Christianity because it's easy and it's comfortable. But they were in danger of losing their souls. He continues, what did this lukewarmness look like for them? Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have become rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing, not realizing that you are in reality wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These nominal Christians in this church, and in fact this church as a whole, may have blended in pretty well with a lot of the churches in Orange County. This area was similar to our area. There wasn't a lot of outside persecution. It wasn't really all that difficult to be a Christian in this area because you know what, nobody really paid attention to them. And so they were in a, an area where they were doing well for themselves. They were successful in this church. They could provide all that they needed. In fact, they say as much. Jesus quotes them, you say, I am rich. And in fact, they say, I have become rich is the Greek there. I have prospered. It's the same word for rich and prospered. Same word in the Greek. So it's, it's reiterating, it's emphasizing that they are sitting back saying, I'm good. Look at my wealth. These were people who didn't know the meaning of a need that they couldn't meet. And so you can see how that would have crept into their view of themselves as supposed Christians without really understanding that they had a deep, inherent need for a Savior. And as they looked around and they thought, you know what, we're, we're doing well for ourselves financially, our families are doing fine, it's it's pretty easy to be here. The, we can go to church on the weekends and, and go about the rest of our lives. There's no persecution. God must be pretty pleased with us. And their self-deception only increases. This is a church full of people like Jesus told the parable about in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, 
drink, and be merry. That's what these Christians in this church were saying to themselves. We're good. Look at everything that we have. You can even hear the language. Man, the Lord has blessed us so much. Eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20 of that parable. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the indictment of this church in Revelation chapter 3. Okay, fine. You think you're doing well for yourself. You say, look at me, I'm rich, but you're not rich towards God. Towards God, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This church and the members therein had earthly riches and storehouses. But their heavenly storehouses were barren, absolutely empty. It's point number two for us this morning is this. Beware of the complacency of comfort. Beware of the complacency of comfort. We just returned from a week at Revival. And a common theme came across in Pastor Mike's messages. And I'm pretty sure it does every year that we go to Revival. And it's this. You know, he's preaching to a room full of students. Some of them are your own children. And they've grown up in Christian contexts, in Christian environments, in a church that preaches the gospel week in and week out with a strong children's ministry, with strong biblical foundations. And, and that's wonderful, and praise God for that. And yet at the same time, there's a danger in that, especially in the environment that we live in, where there isn't really much persecution or isn't really much threat to saying, hey, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, that they might fall prey to the same situation that this church in Laodicea had fallen prey to that they might just add Christianity to their lives the way they add their extracurricular programming to their lives. And so as Pastor Mike was standing up and preaching at Revival, he's preaching to try to get them to understand something that's very difficult for teenagers to understand, and that is their own mortality, which brings to light their need for a Savior. Their genuine need for a Savior. Not because mom and dad would be happy. Not because... It would make Pastor Mike happy, even though, yes, it would, and it would make parents happy. Not because it's the easy thing to do, but because it's, it's the, the only thing to do. So he's trying to, to, to shake these students out of the complacency of comfort, is what he's trying to get them to do. And to come to realize their desperate need for Christ. And praise God, there are some that do during that week, year after year after year. We, we hear the testimonies in the baptismal tanks during the next year. But that's what this church needed as well. They needed to realize the depth of their poverty when it came to their relationship with God. And so my question is, have you reached that point where you've realized that genuine need, that genuine reliance on someone outside of yourself to meet a need that you can't meet yourself? I know in this room we've got a lot of successful men but all of the worldly success won't mean anything in eternity. And beyond that, you cannot be a self-made spiritual millionaire. You can't be successful when it comes to your need with Christ. You've got to admit that you can't do it, that you can't close the deal. You can't win in this regard. 
have to recognize your poverty and cast yourself on the mercies of God. That's what Jesus was trying to get this church to understand. You say, I am rich, I've prospered, I, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. When we remember this, when we remember the estimation that God has of us before Christ, it keeps us from this complacency of comfort. Because we will always be mindful of the greatness of his grace and his mercy. We will always be thankful for that. We will always be striving to respond rightly to that. Beware of the complacency of comfort. Don't trust in comfort. Put your faith not in your comfort, but in your conviction of your need for Christ. Well, Jesus moves on in this letter to his counsel to this church, his advice, his exhortation. He says, I counsel you. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus' words here drip with sarcastic irony. The church that needed nothing needed his counsel. The church that was materially rich needed to buy what couldn't be purchased with money. And he lists these three things. He says, you need to buy gold from me. You need to buy clothing from me. And you need to buy medicine from me. Eye salve from me. The gold, the gold refined by fire, it's, it's pure gold. It's gold without any impurities, any dross. It's a, a metaphor for the pure and undefiled faith that we're called to have as believers. For it is this faith, as this text says, that will make us genuinely, truly rich towards God. Unless we have faith, we will always be those who are, are beggars, those who are pitiable, those who are wretched in the sight of God. But if we receive, if we go to the Lord for the gold that is that pure and undefiled faith, that is when we will see ourselves begin to be able to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy nor thieves break in and steal. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 of this faith, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, and he's talking about earthly gold there, which the, the church in Laodicea had plenty of. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a gold that, that is far superior, far greater than any earthly gold more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want to be found living, having lived a life that is, is gonna reflect in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, it means that you have to start with faith. You have to go to the Lord, recognize your poverty and go to him seeking that faith, that, that gold that will make you truly rich. He continues though and he talks about these white garments that they were to buy. We talked about those before in, in the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, 4, yet you have some, you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And with that church, we talked about the reality, that the, the fact that that white garment was a symbol for the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that we all need. And that comes when we receive that, that gift of faith from, from the Lord, where we are able to put our, our faith and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. And in exchange, we receive what? His imputed righteousness. 
that great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is saying, okay, to this church, remember one of the things that, that Laodicea was known for was the production of these black woolen garments that everybody in the, the area wanted. It was a, a symbol of luxury, of status. They were known for these black woolen garments and Jesus is going to them saying, you don't need that. You need to come to me and buy white garments from me. You need righteousness. It's this righteousness that allows us to then go out and live lives that are pleasing to him. To bear fruit, to live the life that is hot or cold and not to be lukewarm. But they were also to buy this, this salve for the eyes, this eye medicine. Again, Laodicea was known to have this school of medicine there that was famous for its eye salve. Jesus is very intentional with these letters. He's writing them to a specific group of people and he's, he's using what they're known for to drive home his point. So he's saying, you, you're known for this eye medication that people travel to you to, to purchase and to receive. But hey, you know what? You need to come to me for a better eye salve. What's he talking about? He's talking about you need spiritual sight. You're blind. You need to be able to see, to understand. 1 Corinthians 2, there's a typo there. It's 2.14, not 2.4. 2.14, the natural person, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually discerned. This is right on the heels of Paul talking about the, the foolishness of the cross. That the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Why? Because they don't have the eyes to see. You need, he's saying, that Jesus was saying to this church, come to me, buy the salve for your eyes so that you will be able to truly see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Again, Jesus had not given up on this church. As revolting and appalling as their current state was, Jesus even says here, I love you. It's the word phileo. It's, it's that compassionate love. He's saying, I have a, a, a strong affection for you, even though you are lukewarm. I want to see you be zealous and repent. I'm reproving you. I'm confronting you. I'm being so strong with you because I, I love you. And so he's saying, respond. Why? Next verse, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Y'all, this is not Jesus standing at the door of our hearts and knocking to be let in. Other times that Jesus uses the imagery of a door, for instance, Matthew 24, 33. Matthew 24, 33, there Jesus is described as being at the gates. At the gates. Luke chapter 12, verse 36. Luke chapter 12, verse 36, there the returning bridegroom comes and he knocks on the door. James chapter 5, verse 9. James chapter 5, verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. These are all references to the return of Christ, to the second coming of Christ. 
not for the rapture, but when he comes again in judgment. And so Jesus is saying, look, I love you, so I am reproving you. Be zealous, be quick, be eager, and repent now because I'm at the door knocking. My return is imminent. So get ready. Get ready, just like he wrote to the church at Sardis and said, hey, wake up. He's writing to this church saying, you guys need to, to repent. You guys need genuine salvation. Come to me. Buy the gold. Buy the garments. Buy the eye ointment because you need it because my return is imminent. And if I come back before you come to me in repentance, it's going to be too late. Jesus was pleading with this church to deal with him before his return by welcoming him in faith and repentance. It's point number three for us this morning. It's this. Be sure you've dealt with Christ before it's too late. Be sure you've dealt with Christ before it's too late. If you were with us this past weekend, specifically on Sunday morning, you saw the baptisms, right? I mean, you might be thinking out there going, Pastor PJ, what are you doing? This isn't college ministry. This isn't high school ministry. This isn't junior high ministry. Why are you giving a, a plea for, for faith and repentance in the gospel right now? We're men. We attend Compass Bible Church. We're good. If you heard any of the baptisms this past weekend on Sunday, you know that there's no age limit to when people need to come to faith and repentance in Christ. One of the ladies in the tank was 77 years old. And her testimony was not, I was an atheist and I hated God, and then all of a sudden, boom, my eyes were opened and I came to put my faith in Christ. Her testimony was, I was hanging around. And for a while, I thought I was okay. There were other testimonies in that tank of also older believers that were saying, look, I thought I was good. I'd been baptized once, twice, three times I'd been baptized, and I thought I was fine. But I wasn't. I was lukewarm. In fact, one of them even referenced this particular passage and said, I came to the realization I didn't want to be spit out of the mouth of God. And I needed to put my faith and repentance in Christ. For them, God was gracious and gave them that time. But that may not be the case. You guys know this. None of us are guaranteed another second on this earth. Whether it's a heart attack, an aneurysm, getting in a car accident as we leave here. And so if you haven't dealt with Christ, deal with Christ. Repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Enough with the lukewarmness. Don't be like those in Hebrews chapter 6. You can't be saved by osmosis. You have to actually enter into a genuine relationship with Jesus. He concludes this letter and says, Behold, verse 21, The one who conquers, who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The reward that Jesus holds out here is an extension of his promise to the disciples in Matthew 19, 28, that they would sit on 12 thrones and they would rule with him. This promise is extended even further to all believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that all saints will one day judge the world. All saints will one day judge the world. 
And so it's this promise again of reward. He's holding it out to those that would hear his message and repent and put their faith in Jesus and be saved. Normally you save the best for last, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus saved the worst for last. Church filled with nominal Christians who had simply added church to their lives. They had fit Jesus into their lives rather than taking their lives and reorienting them completely around Jesus. As a result, they become a useless church, stagnant, lifeless, no good to one another, no good to the community around them either. And so Jesus issued this stern rebuke. I hope that, that you've dealt with Christ, that you have repented from your sins and put your faith in Christ already. If not, make that the first thing you do when you break into small groups right now. Either grab your leader, grab another guy and, and go get right with the Lord or stop everything in front of the whole group and say, guys, I, I don't know that I'm saved. Start there. If you have done that, I would encourage you to examine your life this morning. Are you being useful to the Lord? Are you using the gift that the Spirit has equipped you with for the good of the body of Christ? And then also make sure that your confidence in your standing with the Lord does not result from the comfort of being a believer in South Orange County, but the conviction of your deep need for Christ as your Lord and Savior. These seven churches, again, the blueprints for Christ's church as we await his second coming. It's my prayer that they've made a difference. It's my prayer that they will maybe work their way in and become part of your regular reading more often than maybe they have in the past but I trust that God has used them during this series and I trust that he will continue to as we keep applying these truths as we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for texts that are hard to hear like this one. Texts that are difficult, texts that we have to wrestle with, texts that are make us squirm a little bit, maybe. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, who doesn't have a genuine, true relationship with you as their Lord and Savior, that you would press in on them right now. God, I, I, honestly, I pray that you would make them absolutely miserable until they're right with you. Wreck their lives until they get to the bottom and they see their deep need for you. God, for those that are here that would say, yes, I, I'm a genuine follower of Christ. I've repented for my sin. I put my faith in, in Jesus as my Savior. I pray that this would be a... a a good admonition, exhortation to make sure that we are being useful to this church, to the, the saints around us, that we are being encouragers, that we are being a blessing, that we are benefiting the other believers around us, that we are either being hot or cold. Lord, give us plenty of those opportunities, even this week, even today, even this morning as we meet together in small groups. Ultimately, Lord, we pray that all of this would be done for your praise, your honor, and your glory in Christ's name. Amen.